Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Friday, March 25th, 2022. For some of you, it's the end of the week. For others, perhaps it's the beginning of the week. Uh, Fridays used to be the most disliked or the most loved day of the week, and now perhaps they're disliked because we're working around the clock or perhaps we're not working at all. We've done a lot of shows recently on the issue of work. I had the UC Berkeley sociologist Carolyn Chen on the show. She's written a fascinating new book about um, work in Silicon Valley, which she suggests is not dissimilar to, to work outside Silicon Valley, her book Work, Pray, Code about how work is becoming religion uh, and religious um, uh, in their sort of in a, in a spiritual vacuum in America. Work seems to be becoming everything and it's acquiring the language of religion, the language of authenticity and emotional well-being and vulnerability. We had um, one of the uh, one of the leading business writers around, Stephen M. R. Covey, on the show. He has a new book out called Trust and Inspire, and he uses the word trust, how truly great leaders unleash greatness in others. And I sensed, perhaps sniffed, an element of religiosity in Covey. He, certainly the, the, the world of work and of corporate advice and leadership is colliding with the world of religion. Uh, I had a piece actually suggesting that I'm not sure they're necessarily compatible, but my guest today on the show might disagree. He, like Stephen M. R. Covey, is one of uh, the business world's leading, most successful, most popular authors. Keith Ferrazzi has a new book out, Competing in the New World of Work, and he's joining me from Los Angeles today. Keith, um, you don't write on religion, you write on corporations and work. But is there some truth to the fact that because of some sort of spiritual crisis, spiritual vacuum, work is solving many of our deeper emotional, cultural, sociological problems? What an amazing way to start a session. I'm really excited about it, actually. Um, so let me say this. It, there was a book written back in the 80s called Bowling Alone. And it is a sociologist who documented the degradation of our tribal units in society today. My father had a men's prayer breakfast that he used to go to. My mother had her quilting circle that she did, her, her card club girls. Clubs meant something. I remember, and I'm a little older than a lot of folks out there in my 50s, but I remember when I graduated from school, one of the questions you asked yourself was, what club would you join? Right. So these things are, are, are eroding in society today in the aggregate. And the question, but that doesn't make us any less tribal. That doesn't make us any uh, less in need of the human bonding and the connection. Somebody, my, my second book was called Who's Got Your Back, where we studied small peer to peer groups and the importance of that in our success. Look at you. Holy cow, that's impressive. Um, with that in mind, <laughs> with that in mind, it doesn't surprise me. That, Pete, that, that the organizations and leaders who do it right fulfill a sense of belonging and connectedness and purpose that will help people bound out of bed, not only to do something that to them is meaningful, but more importantly, and this is very important because I do a lot of work coaching executive teams and always everyone's already trying to bullshit about what is the purpose of the company. 
But it's very interesting that when we really thin slice it and you ask the questions of associates, why do they bound out of bed and show up in the work in the morning? It's because of the damn people, not because of some tether to a corporate purpose that somebody put on a poster and said, this is why we exist, even though we're B2B software folks. At the end of the day, it's about belonging. And, and that's one of the things that we really focused on in this book. During the pandemic, we actually saw more connectedness and bonding than we had had before. We saw the vulnerability of leaders in tears who would have never shown a crack in their armor show up and be afraid for their, uh, for their parents in assisted living who they couldn't get to for six months, right? We saw that humanization and that vulnerability. And as a result, some teams leaned into that and actually thrived and increased their connectedness during a very traumatic time. So I don't know if that answers your question, Andrew, but if you really think about, and I don't mean to dodge the question of what is religion, but a very big part of religion is a sense of not belonging and connectedness. I'm actually working on a new book right now about what business has to learn from significant movements in society, whether those be you know, the civil rights movement, the LGTP2 movement, or, or accelerated governmental, accelerated religious uh, advancement like the Mormon faith. What made that work that people followed in masses? And then what do we have to learn about that in terms of change management and corporations? So anyway, long answer and uh, back to you. <laughs> well, it, 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 it's, a long, it's a long question. It's a long conversation, Keith. Um, and it's one, as I said, we've been having. In I like it. I like it. It's, important. it's an interesting and important question. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a critical question. Um, what do you think then political leaders can learn from innovative business leaders who listen to guys like yourself? We did a show recently with Brian Class, a British-based expert on power uh, he talked about what a scan of Putin's power-addled brain might tell us. Certainly, in the in the context of a book you wrote just before this new one, uh, he is not leading without authority. He is uh, Putin is an example of old-fashioned, um, unaccountable leadership. So, so what can politicians who are searching? for relevance yeah. in the 2020s? What can they well, learn I, from I guys wrote, like you and from your books? I wrote a piece in Fast Company, and I know you're a, somebody's doing something amazing right now, but I wrote a piece in Fast Company as a direct advice to the Biden administration before they, uh, uh, before they took authority. And it was that what I teach and coach executive teams, uh, I created a word for it. I call it co-elevation. Meaning when, it, when I see a group of siloed, slightly schismatic, um, dis, dis, sometimes dysfunctional, but disjointed individuals leading one of the most powerful companies in the world, and I could give you a list that won't, but could give you a list of the brands we all know. And to see that dysfunction, and yet the, the company works incredibly well because of the business model, et cetera, but the team could excel. The team could, could truly keep uh, foresight, looking around corners, et cetera. When I see a team like that and I can re-engineer the social contract among a group of people, that's what I do for a living. We re-engineer the, the agreements among a group of people on how to interrelate, behave, produce, et cetera. When I can do that, it's, it's transformative to the business. Now, my advice to the Biden administration in that piece in Fast Company was, damn it, your cabinet has never, cabinets have never been that. Cabinets of advisors are hub and spoke to the to the president. They're individuals running different pieces. But what if what if they could commit to crossing the finish line together 
What if they could commit to thinking about their team, not as the cabinet, but as all those they need to get their job done on either side of the aisle? What if we brought a principle of co-elevation, a mindset of leadership around co-elevation? What if we brought that to the political world? That is, to me, a dream. And um, I was once asked to be of service to a country um, just outside of the Middle East that was uh, with the country, with the government leaders that was trying to figure out how do they shift from being beholden to a, uh, to a, to a parent country where they get a lot of support directly in the Middle East and how do they move more toward the West and some of the Western ideals and what does that look like and how does that transformation occur and how do we build a movement around that, et cetera. So, you know, like you can't do it in silos. You can't make transformation happen in silos. Now, one of the things you could argue is, you know, do our politicians really give a damn about making transformation occur? Or do they care about power? And if they care about power and they care about prestige, and I'm sure that there's different mixes of reasons why people step step into that platform. I always wanted, when I was growing up, wanted to be a politician. I was groomed through up Yale um, University to leave and come back to my home state and run for Congress. But I got so disenfranchised for a number of reasons um, that I decided to make real movement occur in the world through the business context. Yeah, I was. it was the question I was going to ask you, uh, looking through your website, you are presented, your brand is almost as a religious leader and your, um, your, your, your subtitle on, your, on the front page of your website is transforming teams to transform the world. But are you really transforming the world, Keith? You're transforming corporations, which is different from transforming the world. Well, I'll tell you where I get my, 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 my fuel, my uh, spark. Um, I grew up in Pittsburgh in the 70s. My old man was an immigrant Italian unemployed steel worker during the crash of the steel industry. Now, at the time my father would come home, by the way, what a great questions. I love this just show. Um, my old man would come home begrudgingly talking about how his strong immigrant work ethic uh, was actually told to calm down and, and slow down because it would, the manager said, you know, you're making me and the other workers look bad by being you know, ahead of us in your peace rate, right? And my dad would be like, what the hell? And I'm just, you know, we're trying to make a difference. And at the same time, we have this impending threat from Japan in competitiveness. And there was a guy, an American, who'd gone over to Japan, that uh, uh, Edwards Deming, and had taught them things like continuous improvement and worker empowerment and all of these elements that were allowing the Japanese steel industry to kick our ass. Now, I, grew, I, I swore as a child, that I was going to grow up. And I mean, it was tough. My, old, my mom had to become a cleaning lady and she hated it. Um, I had to go get a job at the local country club when I was 10. I had to lie that I was 13, but I was 10. And, my, and I see my dad, God bless him. He was just so crestfallen and beaten up because he came to the United States, as all immigrants did, with this great promise. And here he was being thrashed about by this crash of the steel industry. And damn it, it was those leaders' faults. It was the way they were running the damn business. And I swore, I said at the time, I'm going to grow up and be governor of Pennsylvania, um, like Dick Thornburg someday, and, uh, and John Hines. Those were my political heroes when I was a kid. Um, and, and maybe someday I'll be president of the United States and I'll save jobs and I'll help families. And as I started to navigate through that, I realized, no, that's not where I'm going to be able to help families and save jobs. And, and the reality is that when the work that we did, we, we helped 
one of the most powerful organizations of the world come out of bankruptcy and, and saved hundreds and hundreds of thousands of jobs. And when the CFO said to me, Keith, the work that you did with us, the work with you did with us was one of the major reasons we didn't go back into bankruptcy. And I say the CFO, because they're usually the cynical sons of bitches. And, I, and he said that to me and I was crying because it was an automotive company and my dad was a UAW steel worker. So I don't know, I don't even call it a religious. It, it's about where do you make an impact? And making an impact is, is helping to change people's lives. And, and by the way, I'll add one other thing. When I'm with an executive team and I'm coaching an executive team, I'm helping that team behave, right? There's a set of values that I'm bringing to that team. How do we interact? How do we relate? And I've created this word co-elevation, going higher together, where the individuals aren't silos competing against each other for attention or compensation, um, but the individuals are pushing each other, wrestling ideas, trying to achieve, trying to, to be better. And as a result of that, and as a result of that sense of co-elevation, people learn to, to pause before rejecting another person's opinion, to not be as defensive to criticism, to be curious about how I can be, how I can be better both as a leader and as a human and also in my ideas, right? Sharpen the, uh, sharpen the sword in that sort of, um, you know, flame tinsel strengthening. Now, I say that because what happens is sometimes these executives will come back to me and say, Keith, you, you, you saved my marriage. I'm like, what do you mean? It's like, I, you talk about transparency among a team and, and challenging and, and speaking truth. I went home and I talked to my wife and I said, you know, let's have a real conversation because we haven't. And I found out she was going to divorce me in a couple of years when I retired. And the reality is that there are, there are norms of social behavior that many of us get stuck in old norms. And there's a new set of norms of social behavior that you can practice anywhere in your life. You can practice them in your community, in your home, in your charities, in your nonprofits, your religious groups, if you want, and your work. And I'm just really, you know, I'm glad that, that I, I've been given the opportunity to put a footprint in the world that has a ripple effect in people's lives. And I found, if you want to use religion uh, correlation, I found my pulpit to be the, the workplace. Yeah, it's, 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 um, it's a wonderful conversation, Keith. Uh, as you say, you, you, you grew up in a, in, in a poor family. You, your, your parents did menial work. You had to get a very menial job. Uh, and you pulled yourself out of it. And your language now of co-elevation and transparency and co-creation and crowdsourcing, it's all very democratic and egalitarian, and I respect you for that. But there's another reality, Keith, for better or worse, especially in the corporate world. We did a show a couple of years ago with the French economist Gabriel Zuckman, who teaches at UC Berkeley, has a new book out, The Triumph of Injustice. The inequality of our age is astonishing. I mean, you talk about these CEOs who you probably advise. Maybe they are, in their own way, honest and careful and concerned but they're nonetheless, compared to the age your father lived in, they're, they're earning thousands of times more. Oh, yeah. I'm really working. So, how do you, how, so, so my question is, yeah. how do you square that circle? It's not your fault that the structure of cap, American corporate capitalism has become so inegalitarian. But given the egalitarian nature of your language, how do you square that circle? Yeah. Well, I'll say a couple of things. I I, I chuckle, and I, I apologize to any viewers who will take offense to this. I mean, I chuckle at the fact that I get in a car and I will fly somewhere and give a speech. 
and I am getting paid three times for that speech what my um, my father made in one year. And I'm just like, this is amazing what you know what I've been able to, to achieve um, by exercising what my father gave me, right? Which was this strong um, drive and ambition to not only be successful, but be of service. And at the same time, um, you know, the intellect that I was born with and the education that he committed me to from a very early age. So, you know, like I get it, I totally get it. But a flip side is on a personal, and I'm gonna get to my view of the corporation in a second, but I was, you know, I have two foster children. Um, you know, we have uh, a, a boy at 12 that we, we got at 12, one at 16 from the foster care system. Both of them had been in foster care in 21 homes before they came into our home. And, and it's important that we give back. That's our responsibility. I, I try to give back in my work. I try to serve like the work that I, uh, I'm trying to advise in the Biden administration that I was making those suggestions. Like, you know, I spend I spend a disproportionate of my time applying my competencies and skill sets to the world. And I have to tell you that, you know, a lot of these executives that you're you're referring to, they very much do the same, not all of them, but many of them very much do the same. And they do so with the you know, the vantage of having a large corporate foundation and other things, you know, whether or not I, I, I don't know their tax situation, whether they're trying to avoid taxes or not, uh, or check tax. Uh, um, I don't know. I just don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Um, what, what I what I can say is I, I'll give you a funny anecdote. You might you might have felt differently the other day. So I was at my dinner table and um and uh, somebody I enjoy and respect is sitting across from me, but he was going off about how um, uh, the, the, uh, the Senate candidate, Dr. Oz, was, um, uh, was being uh, taken off the air um, because uh, the lobby of the pharmaceutical industry was so worried that he would get political power and then go to Washington and help to turn around the um, the state of, of pharmaceuticals and that, in fact, the pharmaceutical companies were and this person was going on and on the pharmaceutical companies are are, are full of, um, uh, you know, of graft and 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 pushing down things that could actually serve us that they don't get margin from, et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, wait, so I was like, Dr. Oz got thrown off the air and they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I got, you know, the lobbyists got him thrown. I was like, really? Like, all right, I made a phone call. It was 1130 at night. I was like, Mehmet, somebody's sitting here across the table told me you just got thrown off the air because of blah, blah, blah. He's like, no, Keith, um, the voting laws in Pennsylvania mandate that when I am, if I were there, I would have to get equal time. And so we had to relinquish that to, and my daughters picked up the show and we're really proud of her and blah, blah. I'm like, okay, thanks a lot. Hung up. I'm like, I said to this friend across from me, I'm like, what the fuck? It's like, where do you get this shit? Where do you get this shit? I mean, it just pissed me off. And I was like, all of these, 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 these people who see these conspiracies all around us. And look, I know these people, not everybody is perfect. Not everybody is, you know, yes. Are, I mean, are there narcissists that also love their families? Yeah. There's all these things that exist in humans. Why do we like this bullshit judgment that everybody has to be absolutely perfect? Anyway, that was a riff. I don't know if I asked your question or if I, but through my 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 diatribe, uh, sufficiently avoided it. 
<laughs> you answered it, Keith. It doesn't matter what you say. You're answering something. I'm talking with Keith Ferrazzi, the author of the new book, Competing in the New World of Work. We've talked sort of broadly and philosophically in the first half of this conversation. I want to take a short break. And then afterwards, I want to talk more specifically, Keith, about how we all can indeed compete in the new world of work. So don't go away. We'll be back in 60 seconds with Keith Ferrazzi. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenon. We are back with Keith Ferrazzi, the author of Competing in the New World of Work. Keith, um, how do we... I love it. There's no excuse for not watching my show. That is a that is a fantastic statement. It, it, do you agree? I agree. I'm 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 a huge fan. You're hooked. Really you're hooked, Keith. And you've, well, I hope you'll be. This will be first of many um, many times where you come on the show. Maybe you'll have some suggestions of other people. Maybe you can get you with some friends. Maybe Doctor Oz, uh, Keith. Uh, how do we compete in this? new world of work or actually before we even talk about competition is it really a new world of work you hear a lot of stuff about covid blah 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 i'm not actually convinced anything's changed has it i would agree with you to a great extent and that's what pisses me off so at the peak of the pandemic a few months in in the united states um i saw this as a potential for a great inflection point um Little things like I had been studying, I, I'd gotten funding from Cisco, Accenture, or a number of other organizations, Dell, Verizon. And I had been studying how remote tools, uh, like at the time it was WebEx and telepresence and things, um, now it's Zoom and Teams and whatever, blue jeans, um, how these remote tools would be transforming the way we work. Like, how do you manage somebody that you don't see? How do you relate to a boss that you don't see um, in, in physical proximity? How do you give 
negative performance reviews in that situation. All of these kind of questions. I've been studying that. And I, I did a project with Harvard Business School called What are the New People Rules in a Virtual World that started back in 2000 and, oh gosh, 2005. 2005. It was a long time ago. Very and, long ago. And, um, and we didn't do shit about it back then. I mean, I wrote 18 pieces in HBR over a period of time and nobody gave a damn. Nobody gave a damn. And so the, the challenge that I saw was, could we, could we use this inflection point and actually change the way we work, change the way we work? And I, I thought about it in two constructs. One is, do we lead differently? Meaning, do we lead better? I have been proselytizing, using your religious terms for earlier. Um, I've been an evangelist for the transformation of work for 20, 30 years. And, and I don't think we've changed much at all. Everything still looks like the industrial era in the way we organize and make stuff happen. And so I saw this as an opportunity to not, and everyone's saying, let's go back to work. Let's, when are we going back to work? I said, let's not, let's not go back to work. Let's go forward to work. And so that was the research project. I, I crowdsourced with 2000 executives, thought leaders, entrepreneurs, and collectively we asked the question coming out of this pandemic, how do we not crawl out of the rubble and go back to old ways of working? How do we go forward and what would that look like? And first thing I asked was how would we lead differently? Um, and there was no question that uh, we got whipsawed on a daily basis on, of changes in, in what was going on in, in markets, what changes were going on with customers, supply chains. And we kept getting slapped around. And how in the world to, do we keep up? We were practicing something that I called crisis agile. We were agile out of crisis. And what was interesting about that is we actually did pretty, good, pretty well. During the period, we actually did pretty well. And so the question ultimately comes up to me, which was, how do we emerge from that, not beaten up and crisis agile, you know, but how do we keep a sustainable agile process in place? How do we always look around corners? How do we um, get infused with more, uh, and I very dem dem democratized, like you're saying, crowdsourced information to figure out where we should go next, not just the arbitration of the head of strategy and, and, and a couple of executives, but how do we really open up the aperture to the organization, let people participate in our future. And we started seeing this in abundance. We started seeing crowdsourced business planning where hundreds and thousands of people got involved with where are opportunities for growth and where are the risks available to us instead of it just cascading down from the top. Yeah, we started seeing it come up from the bottom. And I loved that because that gets right back to my roots. Of Can you have, you've got a couple of, of, of concrete examples, Keith, where you think that actually worked and continues well, to work. did a beautiful job. And I think if, and I don't know how you feel about corporations, I, I'm starting to sniff on how you feel about corporations, but I suspect you might feel a little better about Unilever than you do about most because of their real purpose uh, focus to a great extent. Yeah. I mean, Paul Polman is always the guy who gets dragged out in these kinds of conversations, although yeah. Unilever has been a bit remiss on the Ukraine-Russia front, hasn't it? Don't know. Don't know about that policy. Um, well, what I do know is during the pandemic, um, they decided to be much more egalitarian in their business planning process. So instead of a top-down business planning process, they decided to crowdsource from the leadership around the world what was going on, where were the growth opportunities. You know, most organizations, they start with a CFO and a CEO figuring out what they want the numbers to be. Then they hand them down to the executive team who then comes up with a plan that meets them, little tweaks, and then it just gets cascaded out to the organization. But they started running a process from bottom up and not totally bottom, but starting with 
uh, um, 300 leaders involved in what they were seeing, what was possible, where were the risks. Uh, Federal Express had never really engaged because they, even they were thinking in a very physical, proximate way. They'd never really engaged their top leaders. They ended up having ongoing dialogues, two-way dialogues, two-way dialogues with, um, uh, with 3,000 executives that they had never, all over the world. So yes, we saw some really good examples of that where it actually worked. I did two pieces in NPR last year, which you could probably find that were really good. It was just about this principle of how do we begin to crowdsource innovation inside of organizations versus thinking of it just as a, um, oh, this is actually, you know, this is this is a good this piece. This is something in quotes on the great resignation is less important than the workers who don't quit or stay at their work. Yeah, if you look at Ferrazzi, and uh, Ferrazzi Marketplace's um, Great Resignation. I just did a piece, 10-minute interview yesterday with David Brancaccio about um, how the great exploration is not that. That's a, that's a bullshit victim way to look at it. That's when companies think that stuff is being done to them, which is absolutely inappropriate because that's, you know, that's basically abdicating your responsibility. The reality is what I think we're in is we're in the great exploration. You know, like on a personal basis, I don't want to get back on planes like I used to. On a personal basis, I, I fell in love during the pandemic, and I want to continue to nurture that relationship with with time, right? That I that I didn't have before, and I'm afraid is about to happen that I'm not going to have again. People are exploring, so I call it the great exploration. And organizations have to hold space for their people to have these conversations. Where are our boundaries today? What what is? Why are we working? And, I, and I, I'm advising companies to do something I call a re-onboarding, a re-onboarding. Help your people get re-onboarded to the work. And it might not look the same. We might need more variety. You know how many, you know how many executives now have a side hustle somewhere, a startup business that they're starting, something else on the side? It's happening all over the place. And so why not give 20% of a person's time in the workplace to pursue whatever passion they have? It could be their love. It could be working out, it could be meditation, but it could be a nonprofit, or it could be the design of a new product that they didn't get approval for in their normal- Google have been doing this for 20 years, right? Yeah, Google does that in some instances, but but now that it's scaled, it doesn't do it like used to. Intel actually just started it in one of its divisions, literally one day a week, 20%. Keith, you you used the word bullshit a couple of times. Um, You're allowed to do that, of course, on this show. Thank you. Uh, David Graeber- Uh, had a very successful book. He died last year, sadly. Very successful book called Bullshit Jobs um, Mm -hmm. about how most of us work. Your work focuses on relationships and authority. What about changing the actual nature of work? Most people do indeed, for better or worse, have bullshit jobs. Uh, You can't necessarily blame corporations or leaders for that. Can we change that? Do you deal with that in competing in the new world of work? Yeah, well, those jobs are always going to be a bit bullshitty. I, well, I think everything's always a little bullshitty, um, but everything can be blissful too. It really is a, you know, my work with, uh, personally, my spiritual work guided mostly um, through uh, psychedelic journeys in Costa Rica with ayahuasca and things like that have, have allowed me to turn what I perceived of as bullshit in the past into other things. But we can go off on that if you'd like at some point. Um you know, you flashed up a picture of a dear old friend of mine in a book that was just released that I'm not too, I, I haven't had a chance to crack open it yet. Um, 
but Tony uh, Shea, um, and we had a we had a, a show about Tony uh, hmm. with the author, Wall Street Journal author Catherine Say on, and we subtitled it Silicon Valley's saddest saddest evangelist of happiness. Um, I know that you are involved in the. Uh, Tony Say Award. He was a friend of yours and you want to continue his work. I'm not sure, though, if Say's life and struggle, what it says about radical restructuring and rethinking of work, his notions of holacracy don't seem to have been realized in practice. Yeah. So what I got from Tony, as for, forget it, the friendship uh, and, and co-investment opportunities, et cetera. But what I got from Tony every time that I showed up and had a conversation with him was an individual who was constantly um, innovating on the radical edge of elevating people in the workplace. He fundamentally believed, more than I do even, he fundamentally believed that, it, and that, that we should allow every single individual to to fully expose and transform and be their authentic selves in the workplace. And, and we need to find, you know, the leadership's uh, purpose is to find ways in which um, every single individual can find their own superpower. And by the way, I mean, I, I, I'm not, that's, that's not something I disagree with. The ways in which Tony went about trying to orchestrate that, he first did it through his pursuit of extraordinary uh, application of employee engagement that the whole happiness, if you read his original book, Delivering Happiness, it's been an inspiration to so many people. He took probably one of the shittiest jobs working in a call center and fundamentally turned it on its head. And we could talk about that if you want and what he did. It was just- Yeah, uh, maybe for in another conversation. Yeah. But, the but, but then he kept radically innovating, you know, holacracy, self-managed teams that don't need formal leadership internal marketplaces, which show the value of what people are doing and whether they were uh, willing, whether what you're actually doing was being of service to each other. And so that's why we started the Tony Shea Award. We wanted to find other entrepreneurs radically innovating on the edge of elevating people in the workplace. Yeah. And the reason I bring up Tony, and I, I don't want to personalize this, but he was a, he, he died a very miserable death. And it seems as if he had his own profound mental struggles. I did a show yesterday with, um, John Markov, who's just written a book about Stuart Brand, probably Silicon Valley's leading innovator, a man who's lived on the edge forever. He also struggled mentally. You talked about your own psychedelic experiences. Brand was a pioneer of, 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 of a psychedelic lifestyle back in the 1960s. Um, it, it requires very special people to live on the edge, doesn't mm. it? It's, yeah, it's not an easy right. thing to do, Keith. You know, it's an interesting question. Does does living on the edge require a level of of torment uh, as well? I don't know the answer to that. I'm, that's not my study. Um, what I can say- You live is, the life. You, you're a man who, in a sense, lives on the edge, not quite perhaps as much as Tony Shea or, or Stuart Brand, but you are a pioneer of these radical new ideas. I try to be. I try to be. In fact, I, I took Tony Shea to his first Burning Man, which I'm proud of. Um, and look, from from my perspective, um, there's really two questions you're asking. You know, one of them is, and, and this is where I get troubled, um, you know, because people are fully human, because people have, you know, suffer mental uh, uh, you know, disease of some sort, dis-ease of, of some sort, um, doesn't necessarily make the other parts of their lives you know, any less credible, et cetera. And the question you're asking is, do they, do they naturally have to go together? I don't know 
the answer to that question. But what I can say is we, 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 we seem to pick things about people and therefore find the, the evidence to polarize our, our views of others. And that happens inside of organizations. And I'm constantly um, working against that where people have this fantasy of another individual of being evil or difficult. And the reality is they're just trying their best with their own mental and, and, uh, and structural limitations. Empathy to me, you know, there's a wonderful guy you should talk to on this show sometime. His name is Danny Lebetsky, Daniel Lebetsky. Um, he's the creator of Kind Bar. Now, this is a guy who started um, because he wanted to make Palestine and Israel realize that they could work better together. And he started a cookie factory on the edge of the two so that the two could, that, so that individuals from both sides could actually find commercial opportunity by working together and find, um, uh, you know, find, find synergy. Um, today, you know, he's one of the most successful entrepreneurs and, he, and he's created something back in the day that I participated in called One Voice, where we can stop you know, we can stop and pause before we instantly reject. And, and this picking apart of, of individuals for what their, uh, what their failures are or their challenges are, I just don't have much time for it. Finally, uh, let's go back to work and religion. Is it possible, um, Keith, that we are thinking about all this wrong? We've done lots of shows about the work-life balance. Uh, a couple of years ago, I had the, the the journalist Sarah Jaffe on the show suggesting you know, her book, Work Won't Love You Back. It's, I guess, mm -hmm. in a sense, an anti-work manifesto, which are becoming increasingly fashionable. What's your position on people like Jaffe who simply say, look, work's always going to be a bit banal. Jobs are always a bit bullshitty. Uh, go to work and build your life with meaning outside work. Yeah, so I have a, my my first book was called Never Eat Alone, and there is a chapter in the book called Balance is Bullshit. And what I meant by that, you guys are amazing. <laughs> it's like magic. Um, what I meant by that that phrase was, listen, you have to look inside of yourself and decide what a what a balanced life is. She has a point of view that you work for work and you uh, and you. And you social and you and your social life is separate. God bless you. That's fine. I've always believed in a blended life. You know, a blended life is when anybody at my company, if they want, if they're not getting enough time with me, they can work out with me at four thirty every day, where I get my trainer or I go to Barry's boot camp and I get a workout, and anybody can go with me and we have a coffee afterward, right? Or I um, invite my clients, unicorn CEOs, executives, to you know, to, uh, to Burning Man with me, all right? And we, we socialize and we open up and we get to know each other, et cetera. Um, where I host dinner parties where my spouse and other people's spouses can come together. And we're not just talking about business, but we're talking about the world and society, et cetera. So I live a very rich life. And if I had to live my life thinking that every sliver of my life was a piece of the pie, I would never maximize it. But if you live a blended life, that you're personal and you're professional, you're spiritual, you're, you're, you're fun. These things start to blend together. I live a fuller life. I live a full life. And I'm, I'm, so that's, that's my view of the, of the balance question. Well, you certainly do a full interview, Keith Farazi. Wonderful interview, wonderful conversation. Uh, your new book, uh, Competing in the New World of Work, is essential reading for anyone who wants to improve the quality of their 
working life and perhaps even their their broader life outside work. It's a must read and I'm sure an instant bestseller like all your works. Uh, Keith, what else should people be reading in late March 2022 in addition to uh, your new book? I'll go in two ends of the extreme. Um, One of my dear friends is a guy named Peter Diamandis and Mm. and Tony Robbins just came out with a great new book about longevity. Um, and Tony's a good buddy too. And they really, they busted their ass to, uh, to really get deep into the research of that book. So, uh, life force is a, is a great, yeah, I know, book. uh, Peter. Yeah. Well, we've done some things yep. together. Yeah. He's yep. very interesting and uh, very much, uh, an innovator too. And then on the other extreme, Keith, on the other extreme, it's one of my mainstays. I, I have like a, a stack of 10 of them here and they're getting expensive because of it. Um, it's called the Tao of Pooh. The Tao of Pooh. It's basically um, looking at that wonderful character, uh, Winnie the Pooh, and -hmm. recognizing the wisdom of that character, the simplistic, childlike wisdom of that character and how we live our lives. So I give that book out to uh, lots of people. Well, Keith Farazi, congratulations on your new book, Competing in the New World of Work. Finally, Keith, uh, I'm asking this of everybody who comes on the show, Uh, Keith Farazi, uh, who, who's in charge? Who runs the world in uh, March 2022? Well, in my in my life, it's my new significant other who I am desperately paddling to not disappoint as I get back on my travel schedule. So is this no in Los question. Angeles, by the way? Is this uh... my my partner is in San Francisco? He's a venture capitalist. He's the only open-hearted, wonderful, loving, caring venture capitalist that I'm sure anybody would ever give credit for. But uh, he and I spend all our time between San Francisco and, and Los Angeles. And it was a COVID romance. Thank God for Swipe Right. So um, it started during COVID. And now I've got to deal with travel. Who runs the world? You know, I think the answer, uh, unfortunately, still is, is, is governments. But increasingly, uh, what I'm seeing is the hope that, you know, earnest individuals, um, like myself trying to make a difference, like some of the CEOs that I know trying to make a real difference and be of service. You know, I I just want to see people who have the ability to marshal significant resources, institutions who want to be of service. Those are the people that I wish increasingly would run the world outside of just the political systems, which I'm very frustrated with right now. 